Soul Survivors. Six studies in the book of Daniel. Study number three, based on Daniel chapter three, entitled The Crucible. We come to the third chapter of the book of Daniel in our studies of the soul survivors, those Jews who were forcibly exiled to Babylon in the 6th century BC. The account of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and their ordeal in the fiery furnace is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. At one level, it is a story about autocratic power which demands total obedience from its citizens. This theme has been played out in history. In the 20th century, it found expression in Stalin's Soviet Union and in Hitler's Nazi Germany. And it is still alive today in the contemporary world, in North Korea, for example. Before we look and make our way through the text of Daniel chapter 3, we would do well to note the concern and shape of the story. First of all, the concern. Even at a superficial reading, the chief concern of this story is idolatry. That is, giving to a person or to an object worship that is only due to God. It's a first-order principle in the Bible. Rather than the second order principle of the king's food in the first story that we looked at in Daniel chapter 1, the cuisine of resistance. For idolatry strikes against the first and second commandments of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that you find in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3 and following, where we read, The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. And the second You shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The storyteller here in Daniel draws our attention to the violation of this first order principle in the text. Nine times he repeats that Nebuchadnezzar set up the golden statue, beginning at verse 1. The last example is verse 18. Five times he repeats the phrase, Fall down and worship, verses 5, 6, 10, 11, and 15. He then goes on to clarify the meaning of falling down before the statue by linking worship of the golden statue with serving the king's God. Four times in verses 12, 14, 18, and 28. And Nebuchadnezzar's intention was to require universal submission to this idol and what it represented. Three times the narrator underscores peoples, nations and languages in verses 4, 7 and 29. Do you get it? You will worship what I set up and demand, says Nebuchadnezzar, or else a furnace of blazing fire which is mentioned nine times, beginning in verse 6, stretching right through to verses to verse 26. And there is no escape for deviance. Who is able to deliver you out of my hands? In verse 15. Cremation in the brick kiln, the fiery furnace of over a thousand degrees centigrade, was certain. 
Idolatry is the concern of this chapter of Daniel. Then structure. Ernest Lucas, um, an Old Testament scholar, has proposed what's called a chiastic structure for this narrative in Daniel chapter 3, which is helpful and which I invite you to follow. But first, what is a chiastic structure? It's based on the Greek letter chi, um, our letter X. Just imagine an X written on a page. Go to the top left-hand corner. In the first seven verses, we have the king's decree. Now follow the line down to the bottom right-hand corner, where again we have another parallel king's decree in verses 28 to 30. Now go to the other limb of the X. Start at the top right-hand side of the X. In verses 8 to 15, we have a royal rage, a rebellion. And go right down the um, line to the bottom left-hand corner, where again we have royal rage and deliverance in verses 19 to 27. And then at the very centre, the intersection of the two lines, which make up the X, we have a confession at the heart of this narrative in verses 16 to 18. So we have five points on the X axes, which divide the text into five parts. Let's take a look at each part. First of all, in verses 1 to 7, the king's decree. In the opening verses, we are introduced to a grandiose project in verses 1 and 2. An obelix, a stele, which is very common in the ancient and near eastern world which is 30 metres high, which is the equivalent of a nine-storey building of today, and three metres wide. It's made of gold, and it's set up on a level site on the plain of Dura, just south of Babylon, highly visible, just like the Tower of Babel in the same region in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. This grandiose vanity project of Nebuchadnezzar states the obvious. If you could amass such gold, if you could assemble the leaders of the empire, see how they're named in verse 2, satraps, prefects, governors, councillors, treasurers, justices, magistrates and officials. If you could demand obedience on this scale, in verse 4, you are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, And if you could threaten horrible punishment in verse 7, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, firing furnace. If you could do all of this, you were in control. Total control. And no wonder there was an automatic response, which we read in verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the tigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar acts as a puppeteer, and his administration and peoples are the puppets on a string. Pulls 
You can almost feel the pressure to conform. It's huge and overwhelming. Nebuchadnezzar had unsaleable power and control of his empire, or so it seemed. In the second part of this story, in verses 8 to 12, we detect a rebellion against this universal edict and the king's reaction to it, the first royal rage. It emerges with a malicious accusation from the Chaldeans in verse 8. Those who, it would seem, had been passed over in the promotion stakes by the Jewish scholarship cohort, that of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, known here in their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Anti-Semitism was rearing its ugly head in Babylon. The text of verse 8 says, literally, the Chaldeans ate pieces of the Jews. We might say, they made mincemeat of the Jews. Such ugliness, which sadly is alive in the contemporary world. There's nothing new under the sun. The passed over in promotion stakes can be very malignant in the 6th century BC or the 21st century AD. Those Jews accused of not following the king's edict were identified by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who allegedly thumbed their noses at the king's command. Verse 12 is very emphatic as the Chaldeans said, your gods to Nebuchadnezzar, they will not serve. The image of gold that you have set up, they will not worship. This is not mere defiance, but treason. And predictably, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 13, we hear the royal rage and explosion. Nebuchadnezzar summons the alleged men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we can almost feel the pressure of the story tipping over into intimidation. Is it true, the king asks in verse 14, that you do not do as I say? And in case there is some misunderstanding, I'm going to give you a chance to show your loyalty to me and to Babylon. And if not, you know what awaits you. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In verse 15. That rhetorical question demands an answer. Is there such a God who is greater than I am? Nebuchadnezzar clearly thought not. And then at the centre of this story is a confession of these three men. And it's an astounding statement of faith. We find it in verses 16 to 18. These three Jews who are accused of treason say, in, in essence, it's true. 
Our actions betray us. Our God's ability to deliver us is unquestionable. But if not, the bottom line is that we will not serve your gods nor worship your image. In this awe-inspiring confession, these three men did not lose sight of the crucial matter, the matter of great concern. What matters for them is not deliverance from Nebuchadnezzar's power, but obedience to their God. Not personal security, their lives were on the line, but worship of the true God. It's a first order principle that we thought about in the introduction. The real miracle of Daniel 3, Walter Luthney, an Old Testament scholar, argues has happened in this confession at the heart of this story in Daniel chapter 3, that there were three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. That the three were not consumed by the fire is no greater miracle. And then we move to the fourth part of this story. Mirroring the royal rage and accusation in verses 8 to 15, the storyteller writes of another convulsion of royal rage. Then deliverance after the confession of faith in verses 19 to 27. Nebuchadnezzar has been crossed. He is incandescent. Look at his face in verse 19. Irrationally, Nebuchadnezzar commands the brick-killing furnace already burning as a symbol of the threat to the defiant to be superheated seven times more than usual in verse 19. This is the hyperbole of the storyteller. Then the three friends are summarily banned in their highly inflammable clothing and are thrown to their fate. There is no escape. They are helpless, tumbling into the flames of the brick kiln. No one will be able to deliver them. But deliverance comes as the heat rises around them. Deliverance is a keynote in this story of Daniel 3, the crucible. And deliverance comes not out of the fire but in the fire. These men are saved in the fire. For in verse 25, we see a mysterious fourth figure, one like a son of the gods, who's seen with the three men, who are walking unbound in the brick-killing furnace. The friends are no longer bound. They are free men. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 29 identifies this mysterious fourth figure as the angel of Yahweh. Perhaps some have thought a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, deliverance comes from God. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's words in his interrogation of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and that rhetorical question that we 
looked at. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands in verse 15? And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's confession of faith in verse 17. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. And it came to pass a miraculous deliverance was there for all to see. Look at verses 26 and 27. No singeing of hair. No clothes burned. No smell of smoke on their clothes. All the evidence pointed to the fact that the king's fire had no power over these three men. The so-called totalitarian power of Nebuchadnezzar was limited. Totalitarianism was trumped by God through these extraordinary faithful men. And the fifth and final part of the story is completed by another king's decree in verses 29 and 30, much different to the first decree of Nebuchadnezzar, which set this story ablaze. The contrast in the two decrees could not be more revealing. The first kingly decree began by threatening to destroy people like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, whereas... The second kingly decree which ends this story with the same king threatening to destroy anyone who spoke a word against the God of these three men, the most high God. What a turnaround. God has shown Nebuchadnezzar, who is really in charge. The God of Daniel chapter 3, the God of the scriptures, is sovereign. He is in control. Well, what are we to make of this amazing story of the crucible in Daniel chapter 3? The first issue it raises is what matters. And the answer to that, of course, from a biblical viewpoint, is God matters. The worship of the true and living God is what matters, is what counts. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego saw that very clearly. Do we? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were atheists in the face of the polytheistic Gods of Babylon, the counterfeit gods. It's intriguing that the first Christians were accused of atheism by the Romans for their refusal to worship the Roman and Greek gods. Someone has said, oh, that there were more Christian atheists in our age of counterfeit gods which demand obedience and worship. Second in this story, seeing strengthens belief. 
Occasionally, the biblical writers dip their pens in acid and use mockery, put down, sarcasm to drive home their point. Daniel 3 is one of the most subtle but powerful samples of sarcasm in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar's loyalty exercise in the great image that he set up is a setup. The writer sees through it. Dale Ralph Davies, an Old Testament scholar, observes that the author repeatedly uses the verb to set up nine times in the text. It's as if the writer is saying, this image and all its attendant commandments may seem impressive and fearful, but the image is nothing but a farce. If you can see behind the facade, you will see the falsehood and stupidity of it. If you hear heaven's laughter, you need not be taken in by it. The furnace may be hot, but the image is hot air. How we need to see things as God sees them. To see through the set-up jobs of our day and to strengthen our resolve not to be taken in, but to believe and remain loyal to the Most High God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ. Three, this story relates the monotony of it all. Story by story, as we've seen in Babylon in the book of Daniel, has a monotony about it. And so does the story of our times. The Nebuchadnezzars are always with us. As one is put down, another one emerges in the geopolitical world. The Gaddafis, the Saddam Husseins, the awesome Ben Ladens have been replaced long ago. And it's the same in the business world. And again and again, accusers are always with us, motivated by malice and envy, pointing fingers, making accusations, betraying people. One thinks of the trolls, the thought police, of our PC world, the anonymous keyboard assassins. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and their friend Daniel lived in this uncongenial environment. And so do we. How we need the fresh air of God to survive the pollution of the monotony of it all. And fourthly, here in this story, we have unshakable faith. In the face of threat, in the heat of the fire, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's faith was unshakable. If God delivers us, I will praise him. If God does not deliver, I will praise him. This is not faith by results, school of thinking. This is radical, exceptional faith. And when we meet it, 
it challenges me to the core. What about you? And finally, deliverance and salvation. Keynote to this story. For Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, deliverance came in the fire, in the white heat of the crucible. And it came personally in the protection of the fourth person and their ministry to these faithful men. We must remember that their deliverance, the miracle, is a token, not a blueprint. That is, it's a sample of the way Christ preserves his people, but not a guarantee of his dramatic deliverance in every case. And yet, with that caveat in mind, we are strangely comforted in this story. Christ did not keep them out of the furnace, but found them in the crucible. The fourth man can always find and deliver his people. He is the Savior, after all.